Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And pleased to bring you what we call the American view of law and government. That is the view of our founders. I would contend that someone who's truly an American holds to this philosophy of government, despite whatever historical background or uh, you know country of origin if they hold to this view, then they're truly Americans. If they don't, then I would contend that our founders would say they are not Americans. And the view is presented very simply in three main points in, in our uh, Declaration of Independence. First of all, there is a creator, God, who created every one of us and created the universe and all the laws of the universe. There is a creator, God. Secondly, our rights come from him not from some human beings, not from civil government itself. Our rights come from God who created us. And the third point is the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. Nothing else, nothing additional to that. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. With me this morning is my fine collaborator, Phil Duffy, who's our constitutional instructor. And we're walking through a series on the history of governments of the world. And the reason it's important to understand the history of governments is that our founders did this kind of study and research and looking at what had been tried in human history in order to discover well, what worked and what, what was an abject failure, what was good government, what was terrible government, what to uh, include, what to uh, be sure to avoid from the government they were creating as they established our constitutional republic. And by the way, we're not a democracy. Many people make that mistake because a democracy, basically, they said is mob rule. Some of our founders actually called a democracy mobocracy, kind of like uh, what you saw with the French Revolution, where, you know, in the morning you could be accused by anybody for anything with no evidence at all that you've done anything wrong whatsoever. In the afternoon, off with your head, and that's the end of you. So uh, that kind of mobocracy is something our founders abhorred, and they recognize there's a danger with mobs. They may make do do things that are violative of the God-given rights of others. And given that the whole purpose of government is to protect God-given rights, you don't want to create any form of government that would strip God-given rights, which is exactly what democracies ultimately do. They, they say that your rights are dependent not upon God. Your rights are dependent upon, well, 50 percent uh, plus one of the people who vote. So, you know, your rights could be taken away if you got uh, a large number of people who uh, don't like you for whatever reason, uh, don't like the color of your skin, don't like the, uh, the shape of your nose or whatever it might be. You know, your rights then are fickle, dependent upon the mob. They're not secure. And so they were creating a form of government, our constitutional republic, in which your God-given rights would be secured by the structure they were establishing. And uh, we have uh, done previous shows uh, looking at the Constitution, every, every clause of the Constitution. If you're interested, please go to our website, 1180wfyl.com, click on podcast, and you go to the bottom of that list, We the People, the Constitution Matter comes up. Whole series there on the Declaration of Independence, another on the all, all seven articles of the Constitution, another, another uh, series on the Bill of Rights, and then another on the subsequent amendments following the Bill of Rights. Very important for us to understand that the form of government they were creating as a constitutional republic was based on a great deal of study of history, which is why we're doing this series in 
history together. Now, Phil is taking you through uh, what you would say is generally the secular path of, of history, looking at the empires and civilizations. Uh, I'm taking you through the biblical path, where we started in the Garden of Eden, talked about the first murder, talked about the reason for the worldwide flood that destroyed all mankind except Noah and his family, and the establishment for the first time of human civil government following the flood. And then we've talked last week about the Tower of Babel, an attempt to build a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy that uh, you know is being attempted again today. And so when we read through, that's Genesis 11, you read through the rest of Genesis, you find that uh, there are kings that arise and, and empires that conquer other empires. So there's a lot uh, going on. But the one theme that comes out towards the end of Genesis is the interaction of Abraham and his descendants with one particular kingdom, one particular empire, perhaps the superpower of its particular day, and that is Egypt. Now, Egypt was an interesting mix of uh, an idolatrous view of civil government because many, including the pharaoh himself, viewed himself as a god. You know, that's why they built these big elaborate tombs for their god, because in the afterworld, obviously, he was going to still be reigning as the pharaoh. And uh, because the pharaoh was god, uh, quite clearly, you couldn't really question anything that the pharaoh did. You certainly couldn't put in a bill of impeachment, you know. This is, uh, you know, kind of the divine right of kings on steroids. And so uh, pharaoh had this divine status in the mind's and the theology that was proclaimed there in in, uh, in Egypt. And uh, at the close of the book of Genesis, a particular fellow who's a descendant of Abraham called Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And by God's providence, he rises to a, a powerful and the second most powerful position in that empire next to Pharaoh because he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, which foretell the coming seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of a taxation system whereby during the seven years of plenty, uh, Joseph is gathering 20% of the harvest from every single farm. So the farm, you know, get in 100% of their harvest, 20% goes into the granary under the direction of Joseph as the as the highest official under under Pharaoh in that kingdom. So seven years of plenty, they gather all of that grain, and uh, then the famine strikes, and there's a terrible time of, of dearth. And in that time of famine, the people come, to, after they've run out of their own supply of food, the people come to Joseph and ask for the grain that has been stored over the previous seven years of plenty. And Joseph sells them the grain. Now remember that that grain had been gathered as a taxation from the people. So very interesting. The people's own grain that was stored by the government in time of famine, they have to pay to get their own grain back to feed themselves and prevent starvation. Hmm, kind of a curious arrangement there. Uh, and uh, certainly increasing the power of Pharaoh's administration. Now, Joseph was a, a very able administrator and, and he added to the the luster of what was already a divinity in people's minds. Now the people were dependent on Pharaoh, uh, you know, as the God King for their very sustenance. And so the people began, uh, you know, selling all, everything they owned. First, of course, their savings, um, they, everything that they had accumulated. And when they exhausted their savings of uh, gold and silver coins and so on, 
Then they turned to selling what they had left, which was their cattle. And they sold their cattle to Pharaoh to continue eating. And then when they were out of their cattle, they sold their land, the last thing they had remaining of, of tangible wealth. And still the seven years of famine were ongoing. And so the only thing they had left to sell at the end of that, when they were still starving and, and the seven years had not ended of famine, was themselves. They sold their bodies. Men, women, and children sold their bodies to the Pharaoh as his slaves in order to regain that grain that had been taxed and taken from them, stored by the government, and now the government's using it to literally enslave them. So before uh, Joseph was in this very powerful position, the people of Egypt were free. And uh, they were free landowners, and they had their own cattle, and they had savings. All, all these things were, were part of their life. But at the end of this, before uh, seven years were out, they were Pharaoh's slaves. And Pharaoh, uh, wisely through Joseph's advice, put the people back to work on their own farms, but they no longer owned the farms. They cared for their own cattle, but they no longer owned those cattle. And they were now the, the slaves of Pharaoh. But it's interesting, there was one group of people in Egypt that did not suffer this enslavement, and that was Joseph's own family. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but his brothers remained up there uh, in uh, what we call the land of promise, uh, what was to become Israel in later years. But uh, they, they remained up there until the famine struck them struck them so hard that they were desperate and they knew that the only place they could get grain was in Egypt. So they went to Egypt and appealed and purchased grain and they did this at least twice. And, and finally, uh, uh, Joseph said, look, your situation there is, is untenable because you're just having to come back here. Why don't you just all move uh, to Egypt, which they did, a family of 70 persons, you know, fathers, grandfathers, sons, grandsons, all, all the family of that were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all moved to Egypt where Jacob uh, ultimately died and was buried. So the interesting thing is that family, because they were Joseph's relatives, his brothers and, and relatives, they were spared the taxation. In other words, they were given favored status. And of course, they were not the only ones. There was the priests who maintained the religion of worshiping Pharaoh. So there were some selected classes within the Egyptian empire that were not taxed and, and had not been enslaved. But one of those groups were the descendants of Jacob, which is another name for Israel. So uh, after Joseph died and all the people of Egypt were enslaved, except Joseph's family and his, his relatives, uh, children of Jacob, uh, they all the rest were enslaved. But uh, years later, another Pharaoh arose and, hey, looked around his kingdom. It's like, oh, I got all these slaves serving me. This is really wonderful. But wait a minute, uh, there's one group of people over there who are not my slaves. In fact, they're not even Egyptians. And how the you know, and so this Pharaoh said, I, I don't like this arrangement. I am going to enslave these people. And he proceeded to do so. Curious thing uh, we find in the uh, 10 plagues that came upon the land of Egypt, there were times when God uh, spared uh, Israel in the land of Goshen from those plagues. And the note there is that Israel owned their own cattle. That's right. Israel, even though it was enslaved, was still better off than the regular Egyptian slaves who own no cattle. They, they own nothing whatsoever. Uh, they were complete slaves to Pharaoh. But the, the point I think that is made here about human civil government that I think is important because ultimately we know God in the Exodus sets 
Israel free from their bondage, from their enslavement to uh, to Pharaoh. And uh, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, God refers to, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of bondage from Egypt, from slavery to this false idol, Pharaoh, who thinks he's God. And the, the point being several things here that we need to recognize about human civil government. The power of taxation is a very destructive force, and it should be used extremely sparingly, not as Pharaoh did, using it to enslave his own people. And this is a, an important principle, although in our constitutional republic, the 13th Amendment says that uh, slavery has been abolished. Actually, if you look at the the actual text of the 13th Amendment, there's an exception. Slavery is abolished except when someone's convicted of a crime and, and imprisoned, they become slaves of the state or slaves of the federal government. And so public slavery is still practiced in America. That may shock you, but it is. The people in prison are considered slaves and the 13th Amendment states that they are slaves to the government. We might say, okay, well, that's, that's fine. They need to be enslaved. They need to do their time and pay their debt to society and all, fine, well, and good. But what happens when the civil government steals from the people? You know, Joseph never stole from the people. Uh, he taxed them. There was an accepted system of taxation, 20%. Uh, but our government, through inflation, is stealing from we the people every single day and stealing in the most insidious mode of inflation where you know you may not be, be able to identify that it's the government stealing from you but it is they're the ones who are printing up through the federal reserve trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars and every time they multiply several trillion dollars they dilute the value of the money that we the people have earned and saved and maybe invested, maybe purchased a house. We look at the housing, you know, we say, oh, the house prices are going up. Nah, not really. Really, inflation is going up. So the money to purchase the house is now worth less than it was 10 years earlier and so on. So uh, there's an enslaving power of government that is extremely damaging because it destroys your God-given rights. Your God-given right to keep the fruit of your labor. Your God-given right not to be robbed by the government, because I remind you, you know, Joseph took the 20% of their grain, but when it came to giving their grain back to the people, no, 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 we're gonna charge you. And of course, in time of famine, uh, the price charge for grain that's rare becomes extremely high. It's hyperinflation, you might say. So several lessons there in what we see with what happened with Pharaoh, the God King of Egypt, if you allow yourself to be enslaved, you can never expect to be set free by that which has enslaved you. And the people of Egypt, after after the Israelites left in the Exodus, those people remained in slavery. Uh, they were not set free from uh, this God King Pharaoh. So civil government in its taxing policies may enslave its own people. And that's a direct contradiction of the purpose for which human civil government exists to protect the God-given rights of the people. As I said, as they said at our Declaration of Independence, the very first right is the right to life. The next right is the right to liberty and their liberties were stolen in Egypt through this scheme of taxation by the government uh, instead of protected, and their right to property. Their property ultimately was taken uh, and, and by a, a very uh, nefarious scheme of, of taxation and then paying and, and forcing them to pay high prices for the grain that 
uh, actually had been their grain when it was harvested. So we learned that, uh, uh, and, and, and this is a lesson, by the way, for the children of Israel, that God was going to tell them at Mount Sinai after, uh, during, you know, after the exodus from Egypt, God was going to tell them at Mount Sinai that he was going to create a civil government for them that was a good civil government. And that good civil government meant they would not have a king. They would not have a king. God himself would be their king. And they should not desire to have a king because a king will be tyrannical, just like, you know, uh, Pharaoh had been to them in Egypt. And so they were exhorted to honor God as their king, to worship and serve him as their king uh, and give tithe to him, 10%, not 20%, not you know, today is more like 50% of people's income. Uh, and and if they maintain God as their king and maintain the uh, Hebrew Republic, which uh, was being established there at Mount Sinai, if they did that, they would have liberty. They would have prosperity. They would be able to earn their income and keep it for themselves. They would keep the fruit of their labors and wars would not come and, and steal from them and so on. Uh, and so the, the lessons of Egypt for the children of Israel were that you don't want a monarchy, you don't want a king, you don't want a heavy taxation system, you don't want to have a government that enslaves you. You want liberty preserved by the form of government, and that is not uh, available in the kind of monarchy that, uh, that was there in Egypt where Pharaoh was considered the God King, and uh, you know, so his, his word, whatever it said, that was what the law was. And so the, the children of Israel were prepared by their experience of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That's a long time of slavery. 400 years of slavery. This was burned into their memory. In fact, you, if you talk to Orthodox Jews today and they celebrate the Passover, you ask, why do you celebrate the Passover? Well, we were set free from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. They remember that you know, uh, 3,000 years later now uh, that, that event took place. But, but the lesson was very clear in God's word about the principles of civil government. If civil government is going to rule, it must rule with justice. And that means the God-given rights of people are protected and not attacked. And that generally is not the form of government that is available under a monarchy. And our founders, founders of our constitutional republic, discovered the same thing in their dealings with King George III. Uh, there's 27 reasons in the Declaration of Independence why they said King George III is unfit, unfit to be the ruler of a free people because he is a tyrant. Uh, he's not uh, obeying the law himself. He's doing whatever he pleases, uh, as if he were the God King Pharaoh. And uh, I, I use that illustration because that's exactly the kind of language our founders were speaking with. They were saying, yes, Pharaoh and King George III are alike. In fact, uh, the first proposed seal for the United States of America contained an images of Benjamin Franklin and, and others who participated in a committee to craft the seal. The seal was an image of the Red Sea and the waters of the Red Sea closing down on Pharaoh's army after Israel had escaped uh, through the Red Sea. So Pharaoh's army was drowned in the, in the Red Sea and they were uh, communicating, thus it should be to tyrants always. They're destroyed and the people are set free. So our founders looked to the, the biblical history of the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt and set free by the Exodus and a, a Hebrew Republic established at Mount Sinai as a pattern that was consciously in their minds as they were working to craft our constitutional republic. Bill, what are your thoughts from uh, ancient history now? 
Well, I'll cover the uh, the secular view, and particularly Rome and Byzantium. Um, three concepts appear to have emerged from Greece that influenced the Roman uh, Republic. One, movement away from a monarchical form of government to an oligarchic form. Two, the idea of a constitution defining the general relationship between the rulers and the people. And three, the secularization and formalization of law. Concerning the latter, the concept of law appears in all ancient civilizations, but in its earliest forms, the law is created by the monarch, by the priest, or by some combination thereof. In its earliest history, Rome followed its predecessor civilizations, but then distinctly moved away from theocracy as lawyers replaced priests as advisors in the law. Arguably, Cicero became the best-known Roman of this new class. So let's look specifically at Rome first. While early Rome had its kings, that form of government transitioned to a republic in 509 BC. As with its forerunner in Greece, it was a government structure heavily influenced by class. Wildebrand explained in Caesar and Christ concerning the early republic. When the original three tribes united, their clan heads made a senate of some 300 members. The plebs admired them, even when it fought them, and applied to most, almost anything appertaining to them the term classicus, or classical, that is, the highest rank or class. Close to them in wealth, but far below them in political power, were the equites, or businessmen. Some were rich enough to win their way into the Senate. These two classes were called the orders and were termed Audi, the good, populist, people, so, uh, in only these upper classes. Gradually, as democracy fought its way, the, ter- the word populist came to include, uh, include the, uh, the plebs. This was the main body of Roman citizens. Some were artisans or tradesmen, some were freedmen, many were peasants. Perhaps in the beginning, they were the conquered natives of the city's hills. Some were attached as clientes, or dependents, to an upper-class patronus. In return for land and protection, they helped him in peace, served him under him in war, and vote in the assemblies as he told them. Lowest of, of all were the slaves. Initially, the slave population was not significant, but it rose quickly in the 6th century BC as the numbers of slaves increased rapidly with Roman conquests. As their numbers rose, slave status sank as they become regarded as pure property. Who then were Roman citizens? And what was the significance of that citizenship? Technically, those who have been born or adopted into one of the three original tribes of Rome. In practice, this meant all males above 15 years of age who were neither slaves nor aliens, and all aliens who received a grant of Roman citizenship. Never before or since has citizenship been so jealously guarded as so highly prized. It meant membership in a relatively small group that was soon to roll in the whole Mediterranean area. It brought immunity from legal torture or duress, 
and the right of appeal from any official in the empire to the assembly, or later, the, the emperor at Rome. Citizenship and military service were probably more tightly intertwined than for any other civilization. The citizen, less quite poor, was liable to military service at call from his 16th to his 60th year, and he could not hold legal office until he had served 10 years in the army. His political rights were so bound up with his military duties that his most important voting was done as a member of his regiment or century. The soldiers were assembled in centuries originally of 100 men. It was the centurial assembly that chose the magistrates. Passed or rejected the measures proposed to it by officials, won the Senate, heard appeals from the judgments of magistrates, tried all cases of capital crime charged to Roman citizens, and decided upon war or peace. It was the broad base of both the Roman army and the Roman government. Nevertheless, its powers were narrowly constrained. It could convene only at the call of a consul or a tribune. It could vote only upon such measures as were presented to it by the magistrates or the Senate. It could not discuss or amend these proposals. It could only vote yes or no. The Centurial Assembly should not be confused with the representative body in which all voted equally. At the top of the voting structure were 18 centuries of patricians and businessmen. Below them, in order, were others assigned by wealth as measured in the Roman coin, the Oz, starting with those having 100,000 asses of property, in other words, 80 centuries, then 75,000, 20 centuries, 50,000, 20 centuries, 25,000, 20 centuries, and 11,000, 30 centuries. Citizens possessing less than 11,000 asses of wealth formed a single century. Durant explained how the voting worked in practice. <clears throat> Each century cast one vote, determined by the majority of its members. <clears throat> Since each century voted in the order of its financial rank, and its vote was announced as soon as taken, the agreement of the first two groups gave at once 98 votes, a majority of the whole, so that the lower classes seldom voted at all. Voting was direct. Citizens who could not come to Rome for the meeting had no representation in the assembly. The Romans thought it just that the right to vote should be proportioned to taxes paid and military duties required. Clearly, the system is a departure from the democratic principle of one man, one vote. But consider the current voting system in the United States, in which one person, independent of taxes paid, has an equal voice in how the federal government versus those tax funds. For those who pay few or no taxes, the incentive is to vote for projects favoring them. Politicians sense this and appeal to those who contribute least to taxes. The system creates a deadly spiral of financial irresponsibility. There was a concept of separation of powers and checks and balances in the Roman Republic, but it's not the system of Montesquieu in the spirit of laws. <clears throat> 
The Centurial Assembly was the legislative body when called upon by the Senate or the magistrates, but only to pass and reject legislation. It was judicial when it heard appeals of the judgments of magistrates and tried all cases of capital crime charged to Roman citizens. Again, it was legislated when it decided upon war or peace. Outside of the Senate and the Centurial Assembly, the centers of government power are even more confusing for the modern reader. The plebs had their own assembly, the Tribal Assembly of the People. After 287 BC, <clears throat> the power of the Tribal Assembly grew until 200. Uh, it had become the chief source of private law in Rome. It chose the tribunes, that is, the tribal representative of the people, tribuni plebis, as distinct from the tribuni militaris elected by the centuries. Here, too, however, there's no discussion by the people. A magistrate proposed a law and defended it. Another magistrate might speak against it. The assembly listened and voted yes or no. The Senate remained supreme. Its original membership of clan heads was recruited by the regular admission of ex-consuls and ex-censors. And the censors were authorized to keep its uh, numbers up to 300, nominating to it men of patrician or equestrian rank. Membership was for life, but the senator or censor could dismiss any member detected in crime or serious moral offense. The august body convened at the call of any major magistrate in the Curia or Senate House facing the forum. Theoretically, the Senate might discuss and decide only such issues that were presented to it by a magistrate, and its decisions were merely advice, or senatus consulta, without the force of law. Actually, its prestige was so great that the magistrates nearly always accepted its recommendations and seldom submitted to the assemblies any measure not already sanctioned by the Senate. <clears throat> its decisions were subject to veto by any tribune, and a defeated minority of the Senate might appeal to the Assembly. But these procedures were rare except in revolution. The magistrates held power for a year only, while the senators were chosen for life. Inevitably, this deathless monarch dominated the bearers of a brief authority. Durant continued, The major offices were elected by the centurial, the minor by the tribal assembly. Each office was held by a collegium of two or more colleagues, equal in power. All offices except the censorship ran for only a year. Theoretically, one of the two consuls, consuls or consultants, had to be a plebeian. Actually, very few plebeians were chosen, for even the, pl the plebs preferred men of education and training that would have to deal with every executive phase of peace and war throughout the Mediterranean. Admittedly, this is a superficial treatment of government organization in the Roman Republic. It should give a sense, however, of its complexity and its departure from the top-down monarchies that preceded it. Let's focus our attention on the Roman Empire next. According to one version, democracy died in the Roman Empire when Julius Caesar, at the head of his legions on January 10, 49, 
across the Rubicon stream, it says, uh, separated Cisalpine, uh, Cisalpine, uh, Gaul, and northern Italy. Uh, that account leaves out the corruption that had overwhelmed the Roman government and its intention to establish Caesar's rival, Pompey, as dictator. Caesar outmaneuvered Pompey on the Italian peninsula, and Pompey moved his forces to Thessaly in what is today northern Greece. Caesar followed him as Durant related. At Pharsalus, August 9, 48, the decisive battle was fought to the bitter end. Pompey had 48,000 infantry, 7,000 horse. Caesar had 22,000 and 1,000. Caesar bade his men spare all Romans who should surrender. The Pompeians were overwhelmed by superior leadership training and morale. 15,000 were killed or wounded. 20,000 surrendered. The remainder fled. It's difficult to identify the precise date when the Republic was replaced by the Roman Empire, but there appears to be a consensus that the Empire period began with a form of government called the Principate. Wikipedia marks that as 27 BC and defines the period as follows. Principate is the form of imperial government of the Roman Empire from the beginning of the reign of Augustus in 27 BC to the end of the crisis of the 3rd century in AD 284, after which it evolved into the Dominate. The Principate is characterized by the reign of a single emperor, or princeps, and an effort on the part of early emperors at least to preserve the illusion of the formal continuance in some aspects of the Roman Empire, of the Roman Republic, I should say. <clears throat> the corresponding definition of the Dominate period is this. The Dominate, also known as the late Roman Empire, is the despotic form of imperial government of the late Roman Empire. It may begin with the commencement of the reign of Diocletian in A.D. 284, following the 3rd century crisis of A.D. 235-284, to and end in the West with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in A.D. 476, while in the Eastern Roman Empire, its end is disputed. It is surprising that notorious emperors, such as Caligula and Nero, belonged to the Principate a time when an effort was made on the part of early emperors at least to preserve the illusion of the formal continuance in some aspects of the Roman Republic. Similarly, it may be surprising to some that Diocletian is singled out as initiating the dominate, yet Durant dedicated a section in Caesar and Christ to the socialism of Diocletian. Diocletian created a huge bureaucracy pursued wars that were largely successful, nationalized industries, raised taxes to almost unbearable levels, and created a revenue police to extract taxes from reluctant payers using torture. Having replaced the laws of supply and demand in the market, and faced with a failing uh, economy, he found it necessary to compound economic problems by implementing wage and price controls, which did not work had to be reversed. In 305 AD, 
He abdicated power in favor of emperors in the West and the East, retiring to his palace in Spalato, where he focused his energies on raising cabbages. On the surface, he had rescued Rome from a half a century of anarchy, but Rome was already in decline. The fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 conventionally marks the end of classical antiquity and the beginning of the Middle Ages. So let's go to the Eastern Empire, otherwise known as Byzantium. Wikipedia has this description of the creation of the Eastern Empire and the fall of Rome. Diocletian set up two different imperial courts in the Greek East and the Latin West in 286. Christians rose to power in the 4th century following the Edict of Milan. The imperial seat moved from Rome to Byzantium in 330, renamed Constantinople after Constantine the Great. The migration period involved large invasions by Germanic peoples and by the, the Huns of Avila, led to the decline of the Western Roman Empire. With the fall of Ravenna to the Germanic Herulians and the uh, deposition of Romulus Augustus in 476 by Odoacer, the uh, Western Roman Empire finally collapsed. The, um, the Eastern Roman Empire survived for another millennium with Constantinople as its sole capital until the city's fall in 1453. One need not explore government in Byzantium, hoping to discover early tendencies toward the Lockean ideal. Byzantium was an empire from its founding to its fall, but it had one characteristic that would have pleased Locke, an advocate of sound money. And there are variations or interpretations of what sound money meant to Locke, but um, Britannica has this to say about the bazaar. Inspiring many features uh, of transient coinages, but outliving them all, stood the currency of the Byzantine, uh, Byzantine Empire. It's based on the gold solidus, which was 172nd of a pound of Constantine, the bazaar of 4.5 grams of about 70 grain, grains maximum, which dominates so much of European trade to the 13th century. Until the 10th century, halves and thirds were also used. This gold was proverbial for its purity until the 10th century. Curiously, Constantine may have been inspired to create sound money by Diocletian, who otherwise was a disaster in economic policy. The form of government in ancient Rome passed through stages, from simple monarchy to a republic and finally an empire. There's a tendency to view the republican stage as a form of early democracy, just as there is a tendency to view the age of Pericles in Athens as a forerunner of modern democracy. Close inspection of both governments reveals them to be imperial oligarchies, that they moved away from top-down rule by a single individual is not contested. They were probably a transition step toward what the founders of the United States were attempting to create. Among the founders, James Madison probably explored prior forms of government more deeply, and he was critical of these civilizations, and particularly the concept of democracy. 
of today, there is a great deal of confusion over the form of government tended, intended by the founders. Benjamin Franklin contributed to the confusion in his famous response to Mrs. Powell, who had asked what form of government the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had created. This response, a republic if you can keep it, may accurately describe the general characteristic of the government that arose out of the convention, but it was not the actual form. Close inspection of the Constitution of 1787 and supporting documents reveals that the actual form was a federation of sovereign Republican states. Mm, amen, Phil. Thank you. It's fascinating to see some of the elements of the Roman, both East and West uh, empires. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea in, in Rome, at least at early stages, as you were sharing, was that, uh, hey, if you really want to vote, then you've got to serve in the military and you've got to pay taxes. In other words, if you don't put anything into this, this system, well, hey, you shouldn't have any power over deciding where uh, money is spent. And I, I would uh, say that there is some value in that view uh, as contrast to our view that anybody that's breathing and turns uh, 18 years old should be able to vote regardless of whether they know anything about our, our form of government, have any wisdom about it whatsoever, and regardless of whether they've actually put in anything to our system, which at age 18, it's not likely they have, although uh, they might be drafted for the military uh, as, as has taken place in the past. So I, I, I appreciate that, that uh, wisdom. I'm wondering if you have uh, ideas about how we could help Americans understand that wisdom and think, you know, people who are on the welfare rolls should be taking out, taken out of voting. You know, if, if they're getting a welfare check of some sort or another, uh, food stamps, whatever it might be, because as you pointed out, what are they going to vote for? Oh, I'm going to vote more money out of your pocket and my pocket. The people who produce are going to take money from us to put it into their pocket <laughs> who don't produce anything. It's like uh, that's a, a financial disaster. But thoughts about how we could persuade other people of this view? Well, I think the, the primary thing here is uh, uh, merit. And what do, what do we mean by merit? Uh, in what context? Well, the context has to be... Um, contribution to the, the, the government, if you will, but also a knowledge of uh, the form of government, the true form of government, and uh, responsible action in uh, you know, uh, applying the principles. So if we have candidates uh, and office holders today, as, as we do, who primarily are ignorant of the Constitution, uh, they shouldn't even be allowed to, to vote, much less hold office. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in a sense, we, we should call for a, a national test that would discern whether a person has even a passing knowledge, you know, a, a grade C. I don't think somebody with a D should be, you know, permitted. But anyway, they've got at least some knowledge of our form of government and our Constitution and how the structure is supposed to work. Uh, that's what you're, you're advocating. Yeah, I think... Um, Absolutely, I'm I'm in agreement with the concept of a a qualifying test, and I am aware of the the primary objection to that that nobody can come up with a a um, uh, an objective test because and particularly in today's environment, which uh, we have uh, groups who are so so widely separated in their understanding of the Constitution, uh, I don't think that's actually 
um, a major problem. I think that that you'd be able to draw um, responsible people from both the left and the right who could agree on certain principles. That would take a lot of thrashing around, uh, you know, in, in uh, educational sessions uh, amongst these responsible citizens. But I think that they could ultimately come down to a series of things that, you know, uh, absolutely pass the evidence test and included mm -hmm. and could be included. Now we we well, we, we, go ahead. Uh, we do have a an example of that. It's the test that is given to immigrants for citizenship. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently from what I've read, most uh native born US citizens can't pass the test. Yes. And, and that test has its own flaws, because I understand the most recent one that I looked at uh, had a question about what, what form of government we are. And the answer, according to that test, is we're a democracy. It's like, oh, no, whoever wrote that test is, is, should be fired. They're ignorant of our form of government. Anyway, but uh, yes, I agree that we've got at least a start with uh, uh, that test that uh, is given to those who immigrate. Uh, to our country and, and become citizens. But I agree, it uh, just because you're born here uh, shouldn't be a, a reason why you just say, okay, you're breathing, you're born here, you've been around the sun 18 times, and 18th time you go around the sun, well, we'll just give you the, the power to vote. Because if we understand the real purpose of voting, it shouldn't be to fill your pockets with some loot that you're going to use the government as your agency of legalized plunder. No, the purpose for voting should be the purpose for which civil government exists, which as our founder said very clearly in the Declaration of Independence is to preserve the God-given rights of the people. So if you have somebody who votes against preserving the God-given rights of the people, that should not happen, that, that should not be permissible. I mean, uh, we've had for many, many years, communist voting and now communists in the, in the House of Representatives, perhaps some communists in the, in the Senate. I think Bernie Sanders might be pretty close to that. But it's like, okay, these people are committed to the destruction of private property because that's what communists want. They want the abolition of all private property. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's the opposite of protecting people's God-given right to keep and own property. Uh, so anyway, but, but you're right. And, I see the problem we face is not going to be solved as many people want it to be solved with a, a quick fix, you know, a silver bullet. We just fire this one shot and boom, the whole problem solved because it's taken us probably a little over 150 years to get into the mess that we are in. Uh, so we should have a long term vision that it's going to take, you know, probably at least two generations our generation and the generation coming up to turn it around. I think it can be done much quicker, much more quickly than 150 plus years, but I don't think there is the silver bullet. I meet so many patriots who that's what they really want, a silver bullet. I do this one thing, you know, write this one letter, vote this one certain way, et cetera, and it's over. And, and you know, get Trump reelected and it's over. Uh, we're, we're secure. No, our, our founders warned us that if we were not willing to fight for liberty, then we would lose our liberties. Well, I think you raised an interesting quest, question about uh, uh, that one question on the, the uh, citizenship test. What form of government uh, is the United States? And the ad, false answer, of course, is democracy. This is a pretty good example of what, what uh, I believe 
uh, is possible to resolve. If you get uh, responsible people from both wings of the uh, uh, political spectrum to sit down and examine these assumptions and use uh, the rules of evidence, um, which are very, very well formed, I think, in, in the United States, if you get them to look at the issue and bring out evidence such as and Madison was clearly uh, the most aware of history, by the way. Um, so you bring out Madison as a, if you will, a, an expert, and you point to his five essays in The Federalists, every one of which identifies democracy as mobocracy and a negative. And I mean, faced with the evidence, people who are reasonably objective can conclude, oh, this is not true. No. And also, we are not a republic, not at the, at the federal level. We are a, you know, a, a, uh, a grouping, if you will, an aggregation of Republican, sovereign Republican states employing Republican principles, certainly, but it's those states that are republic, that are republics. Not, not the federal government itself. The federal government is a contract between uh, the states and, and, the, uh, uh, and the people as well. Uh, federal uh, government or, you know, officials are not a part of that. They're not even parties to the contract. But it is a contract. You could look through that and you could say, okay, uh, the federal government was contracted to do this, 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 and this. And okay, uh, now we have, you know, once we, we uh, understand that, that becomes a part of the evidence, and you build upon this logically, then you can come to some conclusions about terminology, which will be reasonably objective. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right to point out that it, the federal government really is not a republic, but one of the tasks given to the federal government, and this is Article 4, Section four of the U.S. Constitution is that they guarantee to each state that each state has a Republican form of government, not a democracy, a Republican form of government. And, and if they do not, then there has to be some uh, change made to that state or perhaps that state uh, gets exited from the union, whichever. But uh, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see all of the talking heads always seems to talk about democracy, democracy, endlessly talking about democracy, lying to the people. Maybe they don't know they're lying. Maybe they're just ignorant dupes, but uh, they're presenting a lie to the people. It is not true that we are a democracy. We are, as you say, a confederation of sovereign republics, each state being a Republican and having a Republican form of government is one of the tasks that we, the people, delegated to the, the federal government to see to it. And one of the aspects of that, of course, was the it, it, when a new state was being formed, the uh, constitution of that new state had to be examined by the Congress to determine that that state constitution uh, demonstrated that it would be a Republican form of government that would be coming into the union. So that was done with the, uh, not obviously the first 13 states because those were all part of the original uh, agreement, but all the subsequent states that, that entered uh, the union, the remaining 37 states that entered the union, all entered in having their constitution examined by the Congress and approved that they 
were formed as a Republican uh, form of government uh, in the States. And again, it's just tragic that this is not taught and that this is not even understood, like you rightly say, among many of the you know, the uh, creatures, the con congressional creatures that we have, as well as obviously those who inhabit the White House and even the Supreme Court don't seem to understand these principles or either that they do understand them and they're hiding them because they have a deceptive uh, purpose in mind. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned a silver uh, bullet idea, which you know, seems to be pervasive amongst people today. Uh, clearly, uh, we've got to educate people about that danger. Um, we can't. We can't be thinking in terms of uh, all we need to do is to uh, uh, have term limits in the legislature. Okay, let's examine that a little bit more closely. You know, so number one on the downside, this becomes a restriction on who the people ought to be able to elect. So you have to recognize this. This is the downside. You're gonna. You're gonna be raising here. But the other point about this is, uh, where, where do you go with this? Basically, the idea is, um, by turning these people over more frequently, you're going, to, um, you're going to correct problems that have existed in this nation for a couple hundred years. <sighs> Just by changing, we, we know we've got the fox guarding the, the, the chicken coop down in Washington. But truly, uh, if we have a fresh group of foxes, does that correct the problem? Of course not. So we we have to be looking for more substantial changes. Mm -hmm. uh, I would agree with you. Term, term limits is what we have every time we go to the ballot box. We have the opportunity to turn out our representatives in the House and, the, and now in the Senate uh, that we believe do not represent us well and uh, do not understand their job. So we are the term limits that, uh, that, that should be functioning if, of course, we understand the standard ourselves. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention that, that uh, I thought was very encouraging, at the Byzantine Empire, it lasted much longer, almost a thousand years longer than the uh, Western Roman Empire, but they had sound money, money as their policy. That, that's wonderful. They, they had a currency of gold and silver, and, uh, or actually, I guess it was just gold. I, I didn't hear any mention of silver, but the idea that uh, there was sound monetary policy may have had something to do with their longevity. Well, what do you think? Well, I, I think that is absolutely true. Um, they did have silver, I understand, and the silver was denominated according to uh, gold. So, you know, basically it was a gold standard that they employed. Now, curiously, Diocletian, who I mentioned he was a disaster in economics, I mean, bringing price mm -hmm. controls and wage controls and you know, <laughs> and socialism and nationalization. Yeah, just, FD, FDR, look, look to him, perhaps, huh? Yeah. Well, one thing that, that Diocletian did do was that he finally, he finally established a, a silver standard. But how much damage had been done I mean, if you look at the denarius, which was the uh, the major uh, currency, and the amount of silver that was in it at the beginning, and at the end when when uh, uh, Diocletian finally stabilized it, I mean, the the degree of inflation it must have been worth about five cents on the, the dollar kind of thing, just like our our dollar. 
Yes. And, and that's, you know, their, their empire, you know, lasted, you know, thousand years plus a couple of hundred beyond that, depending on how you want to measure, you know, before the division between the East and West. But uh, we, we're only at 200 years, a little over 200 years old. And we're now on the ropes financially as, as a nation. And we're seeing hyperinflation creeping its way into our, our, our situation because of that rejection of sound money. And uh, that rejection of sound money, sadly, is not just something recently, you know, that, that Biden invented. It began in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve, a non-federal, that is, there's no government uh, entity that is the Federal Reserve. They are a private banking cartel. Yes, there is some approval that has to happen as to who becomes the head of the Federal Reserve and all that. But really, that's just window dressing to somehow claim that the Federal Reserve is accountable to we, the people. Ron Paul famously, is, no, numerous times as a congressman, called for the auditing of the Fed. You know, if, this be, if these people really are supposed to be accountable, these people are in charge of our financial system. They set the interest rates. They control way, way too much and yet they're not accountable. And of course, he never did get the audit of the Fed that he demanded uh, because they, it would reveal that we've been robbed and continuously robbed for oh, 110 years now uh, by this agency that has been, been allowed to function by our, our federal government, but is really a violation of the standards of our constitution. Well, you could look at the uh, devaluation of money and you can go, go all the way back to uh, the civil civil war uh, I shouldn't use that term because it was not a civil war. Uh, it was not a war for the central control of the government. It was a war of secession. But basically, you had the greenback, um, a greenback uh, deflation, if, in, inflation, if you will, which was a major, major problem. Um, and why did we have that? We had that for, because there was a war. And why did we have the war? Oh, uh, this would be an interesting story, but it goes well beyond the, the amount of time left to us. Yes, indeed. It, that, that whole war between the states, I think, is a more neutral term. But uh, indeed, that was the beginning of experimenting with money created out of thin air rather than money based upon actual work. Because that's really what money is, is you're the fruit of your labor stored in a form that is easily portable and you can exchange goods and services. That, that's the whole purpose of money. But we have seen that uh, uh, the abuse of that power that we, the people granted to the federal government has been ongoing now for, uh, for more than a hundred years. And uh, we are about to face uh, the consequences of that uh, as the world has begun to dump their dollars. They're no longer using the dollar. The dollar's lost its uh, world reserve currency status, and, and that's going to bring great hardship to, to our country. Well, we need to understand these principles and understand these issues and understand this history to be able to restore our constitutional uh, republic of sovereign states, uh, each state being a, a sovereign republic in this federation. And so we invite you to come back and join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. here on WFYL, but also check out our podcast. That is, each show is recorded and preserved. Uh, go to 1180wfyl.com, click on podcasts, and there you'll find a treasure trove of many multiple years of teaching on our constitution and our form of government. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. Join us next Friday morning.